Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. But on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, some of Jesus' female disciples, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to see more of your glory. That by your Holy Spirit, you would unstop our ears to hear your wonderful truths. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would unharden all of our hearts to receive more of your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and my mom still lives there. And about every other year, my mom will come and visit us for five to seven days. And I love my mom a lot, and she loves me and my family a lot, but we know five to seven days is about our limit, right? My mom comes with a lot of energy. She's a very unique person, and she knows that, and so she'll always say, hey, am I coming too long? I don't want to stay too long, because she knows once she stays too long, it might make us not so Christian, right? And so, so she'll say, okay, so we'll go, the, well, about 10 years ago, um, she came up and she stayed for nine days uh, because of the airfare prices. And it was good. We were still fine by the end of it. Um, but we were also ready uh, to return to normal life as well. You probably know what I'm talking about. So, so the, the morning comes uh, where she is about to fly back to St. Louis. And my brother sends me a text message. And he knows that, that my mom is at our house and my brother lives in Chicago. And he sends me a text message to, and says, hey, a tornado hit the St. Louis airport. And so I wake up, I see this, and I'm like, 
okay, it's April. So I text him back and I said, ha, 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 April fools. You know, you didn't get me this time. And I turned over to go back to sleep. You know, as we look at the passage today, it is the story of the resurrection. And maybe it has become commonplace to you, but it is ridiculous. It is crazy to think that someone was dead for three days and then came back to life. Maybe to you, the resurrection seems like an April Fool's joke, like it was just some story made up by some people that stole Jesus's body, and then gullible people believed it and passed it down throughout the generations. Would it surprise you that that first Easter Sunday, nobody believed the resurrection? Even the women who showed up at the tomb, heard from the angels, disbelieved the resurrection until they encountered the risen Jesus. When they went back and they told the 10 apostles, none of them believed the women. As it said in our story here, they considered it an idle tale. It was just, it was just a fool's joke. Even Thomas, Doubting Thomas, who gets the famous name Doubting Thomas because, because of his doubt, really, he was one amongst many, but he would not believe his 10 best friends and these women disciples that Jesus was risen from the dead. Nobody believed that Christ had risen from the dead. Because a resurrection seems like something only a fool would believe. Maybe you come here today and you are not sure if Jesus has risen from the dead. Or you don't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Maybe your unbelief comes in other areas that, you, that it's hard for you to believe that Jesus loves you. That it's hard for you to believe that that Jesus is in control of all things. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that Jesus is coming back and is going to make everything right again in the world. Whatever you're struggling to believe, whatever you're doubting, the question we have before us today is how does Jesus engage our skepticism? How does he engage our doubting and our un? belief. You know, in previous Easter's, I, I kind of laid out for you a credible reason why we can believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus. You can go listen to those if you want, but today I specifically want to see how Jesus responds to our doubting, because whether you are doubting here today or not, doubting is a part of faith that comes, and how Jesus responds is very important, and we will see how Jesus responds as we take a journey with Jesus today. It's going to be a 20-verse, seven-mile journey with Jesus. And so we're going to continue in Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verses 13, and we'll get all the way through verse 34a. Uh, uh, eventually, we'll get there. But what we'll find as we take this journey with Jesus is that Jesus responds to our skepticism by walking with us in our doubting, by talking to us from God's writing and by surprising us in his communion. So first, how does Jesus respond to skepticism? First, Jesus walks with us in our doubting. Look at verse 13 with me, if you would. It says, that very day, which is Easter Sunday, resurrection day, two of them, his disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Notice it doesn't simply say they did not recognize Jesus, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We'll find out why this is a little bit later. Verse 17, and he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Jesus takes the Columbo approach. If you're familiar with Columbo, he comes in just kind of, what's going on? Like, what, what happened here? He's asking questions, and he's listening to them as they respond. And, and Jesus' question of what's going on stops these two disciples in their track. They cannot believe that Jesus has not heard what is going on. But more than that, as they stop to tell Jesus, this man who's a stranger to them, what just happened in Jerusalem, they are rehearsing this story and grieving in the midst of it. And so they stand still in sadness, recounting to them what has happened in Jerusalem. Remember at this time, to their knowledge, Jesus was still dead. That Jesus' body had been stolen from the grave and probably dishonored, not allowing them to pay their respects. That, that two women, or more than two women, that women went to the grave and an angel appeared. And so they were hallucinating and this angel told them that Jesus was alive. And so they were in the pit of grief as they shared with the stranger what happened. Verse 18 It says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? The irony of Cleopas's question is overwhelming. They were walking with Jesus, whom they did not recognize, asking Jesus if he was the only one who did not know what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. And the reality is, Jesus, whom they were talking to, is the only one who really knew what just happened in Jerusalem. See, Jesus knew what happened in Jerusalem, not only spiritually, not only intellectually, but also experientially. See, Jesus alone knew what it was like to be falsely accused, to be declared innocent, and then be sentenced to death. Jesus alone knew what it was like to have thorns driven into his head and nails driven through his wrists and his feet. Jesus alone knew what it was like to hang naked on a cross, suffocating to death as those whom he made and was sustaining ridiculed and mocked him. Jesus alone knew what it was like to bear the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. And Jesus alone knew what it was like to descend into death and then to awaken three days later in a cold, dark cave. Jesus alone knew what it was like to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And yet, in disbelief, Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? One preacher says it this way, and I love it. It's as if Cleopas is saying to Jesus, what's wrong with you? Have you been living under a rock? And Jesus is like, actually, I kind of have been, right? Notice how Jesus responds to these doubting disciples. Jesus does not rebuke them. He does not smack them across the face. He does not dismiss them and abandon them to go find more faithful disciples. Jesus, gentle and lowly, unfrazzled and seemingly unhurried, 
walks with his disciples, talks with his disciples, asks questions, and listens to them. And he asks one more question, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was, notice the past context here, the past tense, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, again, past tense, we had hope, meaning they no longer had that hope. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. These men were followers of Jesus before the crucifixion. They believed Jesus was a prophet. They had even hoped that he was the redeemer of Israel. But when Jesus was crucified and put on the grave, so was their hope. So was their joy. You see, these disciples believed Jesus' death and crucifixion proved that he was not the redeemer of Israel. But in reality, it was through his death and resurrection that he, that was the instrument or the means of his redemption of Israel. Verse 22 continues, says, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us, meaning they were hanging out with the apostles, went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But, but, him being Jesus, they did not see. You know, these disciples' response is so instructive to us on how foundational the resurrection of Jesus is. You see, if Jesus simply died on a cross on Friday and was not raised from the grave on Sunday, there is no hope of salvation or redemption for any of us. Crucifixion Friday without resurrection Sunday means that we are stuck in our sins. It means that the Holy Spirit does not dwell within us. It means that we are cut off from our creator for all eternity. It means that Jesus was a sham. Good Friday without Resurrection Sunday is like a brand new car with no wheels. It's like an expensive guitar with no strings. It's like winter with no summer. These disciples are right in this point. That Good Friday without Resurrection Sunday is no good news at all. And so as you remember and consider the crucifixion of Christ, as you share the crucifixion of Christ with others, don't forget the resurrection because it is not Good Friday unless there is resurrection Sunday. And again, now look, see how Jesus responds to these skeptics. He does not shame them or belittle them or abandon them. He walks with them and talks with them. And this is an encouragement that Jesus walks and talks with us when we are struggling with our faith. It's also instructive to us on how we should walk with others who are struggling to believe. Several years ago, I had the privilege of baptizing a young man. And I heard uh, earlier this year that he was really struggling in his faith, that he had actually given up on his faith. And so I asked him if we could get together, and we did, and it was a good time together. And I was asking him kind of what was going on. 
And he shared about just a lot of the hurts in his life. And because of all of the hurts in his life, he had become convinced that God is the bad person and that Satan is the good person and that God is deceiving us, not Satan. And so I continued to ask questions. And, and he said, you know, he, he identified himself as a Satanist now, someone that I got to baptize. But he said, but I'm not a weird Satanist. So evidently there's Satanists and weird Satanists, I don't know. But he says, he says, I'm now a Satanist. And so I just continued to ask questions like, well, tell me, what do you believe about God? What, what do you believe your purpose in life is? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the cross? What do you believe about the resurrection? What do you believe about heaven and hell? What do you believe about these things? And he talked and he shared. And I just listened. I walked with him, cared for him. And then I asked him, I said, hey, do you want, to, you want to see how the Bible tries to answer these questions? I have four booklets we can go through. And he said, yes. And so I gave him the first booklet and he, he left and he went. And, and before we even had a chance to meet again, God turned his life around. God drew him back to Christ. God regave him the joy of his salvation. And it was so sweet two weeks ago to serve him communion for the first time in a long time because he had come back to his Savior. And so as I got together with him, I talked to him. I said, what happened? How, how did God turn you around? He said, well, you and my family and my friends, as I shared with them what I was thinking and what I was believing, they did not come and whack me over the head with the Bible. They did not shame me. They did not send me away. They listened to me. They loved me. They cared for me. This is instructive to us, how we are to love those who are struggling with the faith. We should walk with them, listen to them, talk to them. But then also, we must share with them God's word. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus walks with us in our doubting, but then we see next, Jesus talks to us in God's writing. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him, that is Jesus, they did not see. Again, the irony of this report is overwhelming. They're grieving because the other disciples did not see Jesus while they were looking right at Jesus and still did not recognize him. Verse 25, and he said to them, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets spoke about a suffering Savior, a suffering Christ who would raise on the third day, but they would not believe those things. They had no paradigm for that. Verse 26, was it not necessary, was it not a necessity that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus goes to the Moses and all the prophets, he is basically going to their entire Bible. He's going to their scriptures. You see, their Bible was just the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the first two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament, and it was completed 400 years prior to the coming of Jesus. And here, on the way to Emmaus, Jesus leads the most amazing Bible, Bible study in the history of the world. As he surveys the Old Testament and shows them how it all points to the Christ who will suffer and die and rise again. I can imagine him going to Genesis 3.15 and saying, listen, the Savior that was to come to crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman, had to do this through death. 
He probably looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the promise of the coming descendant of David as the king of Israel who would reign on the throne forever. He would have certainly turned to Isaiah 53 that explained that the Christ would be one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I imagine him then turning to Jonah and saying, you know, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish and then brought out to life, so must the Son of Man have been three days in the earth and returned to life. Jesus was giving these guys a whole new vantage point on their Bible. He was giving them a Jesus-centered view of the Old Testament. A couple months ago, my son Corbin and I uh, we're hanging out on a Tuesday night. We had nothing to do, which is very rare. It was great. And he said, hey, Dad, uh, you want to go to the movies? And I'm like, sure, it's Tuesday, right? Like, we only go on Tuesdays. You probably know why, right? Like, $5 moving popcorn, can't beat it. Won't go any other day of the week. But it's Tuesday. So, yeah, let's go. So we get up and we go to the movie theater, and we decide to watch the movie Avatar, The Way of the Water, which is not... Uh, recommended for all ages, but that's the movie we went to go see. And as we were buying our tickets, there was a $2 upcharge because it was a 3D movie. And so they gave us the 3D glasses. And as we went into the movie, the, the visual effects were just amazing. Everything was just bursting out of the screen at us. The colors were just vibrant. And as they dove through the water, you felt like you were swimming through the ocean as well. But then during the movie, as I seem to always do during every 3D movie, you probably have too, I'm like, what would this look like without my 3D glasses? And so I remember taking my 3D glasses and putting them up and looking at the screen, and you've probably done this too, and I'm looking at the screen and everything's kind of blurry and kind of flat, and it's not nearly as vibrant, right? But then you're like, it's not worth it. I'm going to put these glasses back on, and then boom, everything comes alive again, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious, in the same way, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you got to look at your Bibles. You got to look at the Old Testament with 3D Jesus colored glasses on and everything comes more alive. If you remember earlier in this passage, in verse 16, it says that Jesus uh, was not recognized because they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And I think here we find out the reason why. It's because Jesus did not want to simply reveal himself to them through his flesh and blood. He wanted to reveal himself to them through the word of God, just as he reveals himself to us today. Jesus does this here on the road to Emmaus. He also does it later in Jerusalem with his apostles. If you look uh, just a few verses down to verse 44, you can see it. When Jesus comes to his 10 disciples, verse 44 says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus prophesied his death and resurrection very clearly at least three times. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He says it must be. Earlier, he said it was necessary. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Why does Jesus say it was necessary that the Christ must die and rise again? Why did Jesus say it must be that the Messiah must die and rise again? 
The only reason I can think of of why it must be this way, why it is necessary to be this way, is because it was the only way that God could redeem his people. It's the only way that God could save his people. I mean, think about it. If there was any other way to save you, if there's any other way to save me, don't you think he would choose a different way than sacrificing his own son on the cross? Surely he would have gone a different way. But there is no other way that God could save and redeem his people than to send his son to die on the cross for our sin and then to raise from the grave to triumph over Satan, sin, and death on our behalf and give us new life. There is no other way. It was necessary that the Messiah must come and die and rise. And he reveals this through the scriptures. One final verse I want to point out before we move on. I love verse 32. It's after uh, Jesus reveals himself. Sorry, spoiler alert. But Jesus reveals himself. And then they say this in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Friends, do you experience this heartburn? It's a glorious heartburn that as we read the word of God through Jesus-colored 3D glasses, and as the Holy Spirit moves within our soul, that our hearts burn within us when we read the word of God, that we see the glory of the gospel from Genesis through Revelations. See, our God is a consuming fire, and through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he consumes our doubts, he consumes our hopelessness, he consumes our shame and our sin, and in beautiful ways, he consumes us. Friends, may I exhort you to feel the burn. In your doubting, binge the Bible. It is Jesus speaking to us through the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so again, our question, how does Jesus engage skeptics, people who struggle to believe? Does he squish us like a bug? Does he abandon us? No, he doesn't do any of those things. Jesus walks with us in our doubting. He listens to us. But Jesus also talks to us through God's word, reminding us that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Finally, we see here that Jesus surprises us in his communion. Look in verse 28 with me. It says, so they, talking about Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. Uh, in that day, just as today, it is rude to invite yourself over to someone's house for dinner. Do you ever do that? You shouldn't. Don't do that. Don't invite yourself to someone else's house for dinner. They should invite you over for dinner, right? In the same way, Jesus is not going to invite himself over for dinner. Verse 29. But they urged him strongly. Literally, they compelled him, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. These men were intrigued by this traveler, this fellow traveler, this stranger, about the ways that he taught the Bible. And so they petitioned him to come and be with them because they want more of what he's teaching. They want more of Jesus. And they compel him to stay. I love what Charles Spurgeon says, that, the, that Jesus is a guest worth pressing. They wanted more of Jesus. And more of Jesus is exactly what they got. Look at verse 30 with me. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it 
and gave it to them. So just pause there for a second. Jesus is flipping the script. Typically, it is uh, the, the leader of the household that will break the bread, that will serve it. But Jesus takes over and says, I am leading this household. Verse 31. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. The mystery had finally been solved. The reason they could not find the body of Jesus in Jerusalem is because Jesus was right in front of them in Emmaus, at the table, breaking bread together. You see, the table was an instrumental part of Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. If you know, his very first miracle takes place at a wedding feast. And through this miracle of multiplying the wine, he shows his identity, but he also, uh, he also communes with his people. And that's what he does through all of these meals. You know, he ate with sinners and with tax collectors. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 into 4,000. The day prior to his crucifixion, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, saying, this is my body and my blood, and we are promised in heaven we will dine with Jesus again in the marriage supper of the Lamb. No wonder Jesus was accused of being a glutton. It seems like his entire ministry was eating, 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 with some teaching and miracles in between. Jesus loved to gather and to commune with his people and to show himself to them. And that was the primary reason for these meals, not to eat great food, although that's wonderful, but to reveal himself and to commune with his people. You know, Jacobswell Church is a Protestant church, and Protestants often are critical of a Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. We think they go too far in their view of the Lord's Supper. But I think... Rightfully so, Catholics are often critical of our view of the Lord's Supper because oftentimes we go too short with the Lord's Supper. We treat it flippantly or like it's not a big deal. But what we learn here is that at this table, we get to commune with Christ in mysterious and wonderful and glorious ways. And not only do we get to commune with Jesus, we get to commune with one another through Jesus. And not only do we get to commune with one another, we get to commune with the church worldwide throughout the history of Christendom. We get to commune with them in mysterious and marvelous ways. You know, when I moved to Green Bay about 15 years ago, one of the things I noticed about Green Bay is that it has a couple of bars here. Uh, you know, one or two every 20 feet, right? That's, there's bars everywhere here. And, and while they are selling drink and while they're selling food, what they're really selling is community, right? Come on in, meet some friends, join your friends, be together, right? It, it's, it's summarized so well in that Cheers theme song, you know, like where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. And so bars competing for business will advertise happy hour, right? Where you can get reduced price on food and on drink and you can enjoy the community that is there. But there's good news for us, Christian, is that we, the church, have the best happy hour in town. We have happy hour every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, we come celebrating and singing and rejoicing. We come communing with our Savior, communing with one another, because this is the greatest happy hour. And guess what? This happy hour costs you absolutely nothing because your bill has been paid because it costs Jesus everything. But this is how important you are to Christ, is that he gave his life 
as a payment to commune with you every day, every hour, every minute, and in very special ways on Sunday mornings through his word, through the people of the church, and through his table. Verse 31 goes on and it ends in a very peculiar way. Verse 31, and their eyes were open and they recognized him. Yes, this is amazing. And then he vanished from their sight. <laughs> like, what's going on, Jesus? Like, they finally know who you are, and now you vanish? Why did Jesus disappear? Well, it's because Jesus had more skeptics to listen to, more skeptics to talk to from his word. He had more skeptics to dine with and to commune with. Matter of fact, in verse 41 through 42, you see when he appears to the disciples, he's like, hey, can we eat fish together? Like, let's eat some fish. Because communing together was so important for him to reveal who he is, but also to enjoy fellowship with his followers. Let me end with this and keep your Bibles open because we'll look at another verse or two from Luke 24. But when my brother Scott texted me uh, that the St. Louis airport had been hit by a tornado, I texted back, ha, 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 April Fool's, very funny. And I turned back over to go to sleep. But I couldn't sleep because I thought to myself, what if it's true? <laughs> like, what if it actually happened? And so I started to doubt my doubts about his text message. And I put on my robe and I went downstairs. And after a few, month, few, few minutes, sure enough, breaking news. Tornado has hit the St. Louis airport. And immediately our life changed for at least a few days. Because my mom was going to stay with us even longer. And so we had to rearrange our schedules a little bit. And it was fine. We still love and care for each other. We get along. But she had to stay for a couple more days because of that. What if the resurrection is not an April Fool's joke? What if it is true? What if Jesus not only has risen, but is risen? What if he is alive today? This doesn't just change us for a few days. This changes everything because he not only dwells with us in our home, he dwells with us in our hearts every second of every day. This changes everything. And then the disciples on the road to Emmaus knew this. See how they respond in verse 33 through the first part of verse 34. It says, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, the seven-mile trip. Remember, it was dark out. That's why they asked Jesus to stay. It was dark out. But they returned to Jerusalem in the dark, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. Can you imagine what it was like running back to Jerusalem, hyperventilating because you're running too fast and because you're so excited because Jesus is alive and you pass by this big stone that you recognize. You say, hey, isn't that the place where Jesus kind of talked to us about the book of Isaiah? How foolish were we? How could we not see that? How glorious it is. He's alive. And they finally get back to the apostles and they say, it is true. The Lord has risen indeed. See, the Emmaus Road story is really a story of two journeys. They traveled seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, disbelieving, hopeless, and brokenhearted. But then they traveled seven miles from Emmaus back to Jerusalem, knowing that Jesus is alive, filled with hope 
and with their hearts on fire, overjoyed to proclaim, the Lord has risen indeed. Maybe you have come here this morning, you have journeyed to church here this morning, disbelieving Jesus, disbelieving the resurrection, disbelieving his tender, loving care for you, disbelieving the hope of heaven, or at least doubting these things. My prayer is that this Sunday, Easter Sunday 2023, will be for you the story of two journeys, a journey here with sadness and grief and disbelief and a journey home overwhelmed by the glory of the resurrection, that Christ has risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that that when we struggle in our faith, when we doubt the glory of the resurrection, that we don't see its impact in our life, that you do not cast us aside, but that you walk with us, you listen to us, you talk to us through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit, because you long to commune with us. So God, as we turn to the table, let us rejoice in what a humble, loving, compassionate Savior we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.